1: So go to squarespace.com stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace?
0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Just the two of us doing it together. We're hanging out. We're going to get to the bottom of some stuff.
0: That's right. And, uh, you know, the Grabster helped us out with this one. Mm -hmm. A little while ago, and it almost feels now like I was purposefully sitting on it because of the, uh, the, the turnout of the recent elections. Across the pond there.
1: Okay. I'm not familiar with
0: what happened. Well, the Sinn Féin Mm -hmm. uh, is now in place as the largest party in 2022 in the uh, Northern Ireland assembly elections. And this means that, like, this is probably the best chance they've had in a long time for reuniting Ireland. Oh wow, that'd be something! Wow, you
1: really did save it for just the right right moment, Chuck.
0: Yeah, it was just a couple of weeks ago, and I read a bunch of articles on it on the likelihood, and it seems um seems like a hard road still. Mm-hmm. But uh, they definitely uh, is it, it's something they're interested in. I think yeah, that party that is, so, and polls are very split.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see how it turns out. But that is pretty interesting that they're they're finally in a position to do that because that means they've come a very long way in the last, what, 50 or so years. Yeah. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, Sinn Féin is considered the political wing of the Irish Republican Army. And the reason we're talking about either one of those is because we're talking about hunger strikes, specifically a set of hunger strikes that took place uh, at the beginning of the 20th century and then toward the end of the 20th century. And they are very much associated with the IRA in fact, if you ask most people who are familiar with hunger strikes, they will probably bring up the IRA. It's like that closely associated with them.
0: Yeah, and, you know, we should just say we're, we're going to do our best to get this right. But this mm-hmm. is one of those that is, you know, it's so fraught with uh, emotion um, on both sides. So we just want to tell all of our friends in Northern Ireland and mm-hmm. all of our friends in the Irish Republic mm-hmm. that we, we're, we're doing our best here. It's <laughs> yep. two Americans uh, trying to understand a very deeply long-rooted, uh, oftentimes hostile situation.
1: Yeah. And for those of you like Morrissey with Irish blood but English heart, um, we will hopefully not tick you off either. We're doing our best here. <laughs> just a couple of Yankee American Joes doing what we can.
0: That's right. And we had a great time, by the way, in Dublin. And uh, our only regret was not being able to go and do a live show in Northern Ireland. We yeah. just. Uh, Couldn't squeeze it in, but we'd love to check it out one day.
1: Agreed. So, you said that, like, this is a a very emotionally fraught subject, and that is a gross understatement, really, because um, what we're going to focus on are called the Troubles, which started at the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s, but um, really it goes back even further than that. And uh, you can kind of place the beginning of hostilities in 1609, when the Protestant English came into Catholic Ireland and said, hey, we're going to take some of this land and we're going to take some of your land rights away from those of you with documented land rights and we're going to set up some English enclaves and we're just going to basically show up and and sit here for a while. And that didn't sit very well with um, the ethnic Irish or Gaelic people who lived in the area. So, that was one part of it. And I also hit on another part, too, Chuck, that we've got Protestant and Catholic basically versus each other now.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I think Ed makes a good point that it's it's not strictly about religion. But when you're over there and you're talking Catholic and Protestant, it's so intertwined mm-hmm. in the fabric of kind of everything that goes on, including the politics, that it's really, you know, there's no way you can separate it. But it wasn't necessarily – uh, an Irish, or, or a, uh, well, yeah, I guess, Irish-Catholic, uh, English-Scottish-Protestant battle. right? Uh, but it is, the seeds are there.
1: So, in particular, in the north of Ireland, around uh, Ulster, a bunch of um, Protestant, English, and Scottish people kind of settled there over the years and um, formed what's basically known, or what was known as the Plantation of Ulster. Um, and so, over time, you've got this largely Gaelic population inhabiting the central and south part of Ireland, and then a mixed uh, Catholic, Gaelic, and um, English and Scottish Protestant kind of group coexisting for better or for worse in the northern part of the country. And it's remarkable that it lasted like this for, you know, several centuries before it finally came to a head at the beginning of the 20th century.
0: Yeah, and as far as, you know, how those people in Northern Ireland that were, that were kind of, you know, mixed in together felt about things then and how they feel about things now, you know, Ed makes some kind of sweeping statements that it's it's just kind of hard to do, especially when you look at, like, modern-day polls on reunification and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Th- those seeds run deep, and people are still kind of divided on it, so you can't necessarily just say that, you know, these days – uh, the people in Northern Ireland 100% favor Protestantism, sure, and want to be a part of the UK. It's it's a mixed bag,
1: right? Yeah, I would guess it'd be akin to, um, you know, people wanting to their state to secede or the United States to break into five different countries or something like that. Although um, probably with much much uh, more emotional opinions about that.
0: Yeah, and then throw religion in there. <clears throat> exactly. Just that little light thing.
1: So, like I said, this this kind of precarious living situation, this living arrangement, came to a head um, all the way in 1912 when an Irish nationalist kind of a movement um, began. I think they started before that, but in 1912, they started really pushing for home rule, which is Irish um, governing Ireland. It's pretty much as simple as that. Um, and that created the home rule crisis, and it was a crisis as far as the British were concerned because all of a sudden their uh, Irish people were, were saying, hey, we, we basically want you out and we want to rule Ireland, so let's just end this four centuries of occupation, shall we?
0: <laughs> the way you put it there just sounds very nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's <laughs> how they put it. Uh, this was sort of put off a bit by World War One. Obviously, that kind of uh, disrupted a lot of things, but uh, eventually in 1916, the Nationalists did revolt and it was called the Easter Rising of 1916 and this was a a, a bloody affair it was uh, i mean i think there were more than a dozen leaders uh, executed mm-hmm. uh, many thousands of people imprisoned it was just a it was a brutal conflict uh and that was just you know that kind of kicked things off in 1916 it continued again in 1919 mm-hmm. with what we know now as the well i guess it was called this then too the Anglo-Irish War yeah And there were a lot of sort of governmental policies going on uh, during this time. The Government of Ireland Act of 1920 officially, uh, as far as they were concerned, created two Irelands: Northern Ireland and what they called Southern Ireland, Mm -hmm. that were all still under the rule of of the UK and Great Britain. Uh, But Southern Ireland was like, no, we're not, what is Southern Ireland? We're the Irish Republic. Like, don't even call us Southern Ireland.
1: Yeah. Um, So that actually kind of got translated into a treaty um, that ended the Anglo-Irish War. It was a 1921 treaty that basically recognized Ireland as two separate nations. You got Ireland itself which is, again, the central and southern part of the country. And then you have Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. It's a totally different country, um, at least uh, geopolitically speaking. It's a totally different country. And again, there's a big distinction between Ireland and Northern Ireland and the population makeup because those Protestant, Catholic, and Scottish people that settled in the northern part of Ireland over the centuries had um, descendants. And those descendants stayed um, loyal to the crown. They stayed Protestant. And at times, they uh, they were more powerful than their Catholic neighbors. So in the late 60s, by the time the late 60s roll around and you've got two Ireland's, uh, you have a, a Protestant elite, small minority of Protestants ruling Northern Ireland, much to the chagrin of the Catholic um, Gaelic people who live there. Uh, and that kind of set up or set the stage, I guess, for the troubles that followed.
0: Yeah, and the troubles, uh, I know you said, began in the late 60s. They carried through till about 98, more than, I mean, the the numbers kind of vary depending on, you know, what you're looking at. But uh, at least 3,500 people died, uh, 50% of which were civilians. And these were, you know, it it was a mess. There were uh, paramilitary groups on both sides, There were British military uh, taking part. There were street battles. There were bombings. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that in the, like when you and I were growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, this was all over the news at the time. And it was, uh, I I had no idea. I didn't understand it at all at the time. me either. Uh, And it took, you know, me listening to a lot of you (laughs) 2 Same here. And then trying to educate myself over what was going on over the years. But I don't think I fully really understood it until like the past few days when I really dug in.
1: Absolutely. Same here, man. So one of the things that kicked off those troubles you just described um, was the, the Gaelic Catholics protesting the, the unfair rule, as they saw it, of the um, Protestant minority. And the problem is these protests were kind of suppressed brutally by the Protestant uh, government and uh, with the aid of the, the British military, British um, police, I believe. And that's that turned quickly into rioting, and then eventually, like you said, the paramilitary groups assembling and basically guerrilla warfare breaking out in Northern Ireland. So imagine, like, you know, going to work one day, and you're Catholic, and your co-worker's Protestant, and the next day you guys are fighting each other on the street um, for control of of your both of your country. Yeah. It,
0: it's it's nuts to think about it as an American because, like, we can't fathom something like that, you know, two Gen Xers yeah. growing up in the, in the Cold War Reagan era.
1: Right. I mean, we're pretty far removed from the Civil War here in the United States. This is like Civil War that took place in the early 70s or started in the early 70s and continued for almost 30 years.
0: Yeah. And previous, you know, we should back up a little bit, I guess, and talk about the origins of the IRA. Uh, this had to do with the Easter Rising that we talked about of 1916. Uh, It was initiated by what was called the Irish Volunteers uh, in 1916. And by the 20s, they were known as the IRA, Mm -hmm. uh, the Irish Republican Army. And they fought a civil war in the early 1920s. In 1922 and 1923, there were a lot of different nationalist factions fighting one another. One of these was the IRA. And there was civil war going on back then as well. So, there's just been decades and decades of unrest by the time the 1960s roll around.
1: Yeah, and that 1920s civil war um, was in Ireland itself. So, after it became a sovereign nation, all those groups that had fought the British started fighting each other to figure out who was going to run the show from then on. That's right. So, the IRA that you and I think about um, that, you know, we learned about from you 2 and the news in the 80s and all that. Um, they're the ones uh, that you would call the provisional IRA. And they formed out of the beginning of the Troubles, those protests and riots beginning in 1969. They were one of the paramilitary groups that developed. And they became um, pretty famous in no small part because of the hunger strikes that they ended up carrying out.
0: Should we take a break?
1: I think so. I think we've reached breakness.
0: I know. The, ner- the I was nervous during that setup. <laughs> Were you? You thought I was just going to keep going and going? No, no, not that. I was just like, man, this stuff is so, you know, there's there are fine lines and I just don't want to misspeak.
1: Oh, I, I don't think we did. But now that I just said that, of course we did.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we'll gather ourselves and we'll be right back to talk about the history of Hunger Strikes a little bit right after this.
1: If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible.
0: That's right. It's even in the name. Use code STUFF20 at checkout to receive $20 off your first month. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included.
1: Yep, again use promo code STUFF20 and you'll receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Save on wireless with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, and you don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Switch now at visible.com.
0: For data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com. The visible monthly rate is $25 per month. It's amazing. It's amazing.
1: Okay, Chuck, so why would anybody engage in a hunger strike? And why would they be most closely related or thought of um, in relation to the
0: IRA? Well, uh, (laughs) you know, there is some evidence that they were rooted in Celtic tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, Hundreds of years ago, there were, you know, there were stories of people Undergoing hunger strikes, and it might, you know, it wasn't necessarily political at the time. So, how it would go down is like maybe somebody owed you money and wouldn't give it to you. So, mm-hmm. you would go very publicly to where they live, camp out on their doorstep, and engage in a hunger strike. And it was sort of just a, a very public display uh, of, you know, maybe you didn't have means to get it any other way. So, it was a very public display and way of saying, this person is doing me wrong, and I am out here like starving myself. Pay attention,
1: right? It, it was so common. It was actually written into Gaelic law. It was called the troscad or troscad. I'm going with troscad, um, and it was uh, it was the the concept of hospitality in Ireland among the Gaelic people was so strong that um, it was just unthinkable to let somebody starve on your doorstep. So it was really kind of playing on two things. It was drawing attention to somebody, and then it was also showing what a terrible person they were for letting this person starve on their doorstep. The thing is, this is real, that really happened. Like it's it, it comes up in some of the um, epics from the Gaelic culture, and like it's documented that it was a real thing. But what's not documented is it's linked to the IRA hunger strikes of the beginning of the 20th century and then toward the end of the 20th century. Um, Because nobody involved in those ever said, I'm I'm doing, I'm pulling a Troscad. Um, (laughs) They didn't link it to it. But you could make a case that it was kind of like in the culture to think of doing something like that because it had been around for hundreds of years.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, you know, it continued like in the early 1900s, there were Uh, How do we sing it? Suffragists? Suffragists. Suffragists.
1: Yeah, like how you call a a female or male server a server, or a female or male actor an actor. We don't do, you know.
0: I know. The David Bowie song always confuses me, though.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a good song, and it should remain.
0: Uh, But they would undergo hunger strikes, but they would bring in sort of like uh, religious iconography sometimes, and sort of paint themselves as martyrs. Uh, they would invoke uh, the Virgin Mary and Joan of Arc and stuff like that. And again, this is is not exactly the same thing, but this is just to say that in the early 1900s, there were, uh, there were women in Ireland that were undergoing these hunger strikes. They also happened in Russia, and I think they called some of these like the Russian method. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would get their, they would do this reverse, like force feeding, like reverse stomach pumping to force feed some of these people. Um, sometimes that would kill them. So it was, it was just a nasty way to draw attention and the, the way that it was countered was also nasty.
1: Yeah. So the first IRA members to hunger strike, went, go on hunger strike, um, were inspired by the suffragists. Um, who were sometimes in the same prison as them. The first IRA member to do it was James Connolly, who went on hunger strike in 1913 and was actually released from prison as a result. Um, And then a few years later, um, the case of Thomas Ashe drew national and I think maybe even international attention because he went on hunger strike and they accidentally killed him when they tried to force feed him.
0: Yeah, they pumped milk and eggs into his lungs by accident. Oh, my God. which is, uh, whew, I mean, it's hard to think of like what kind of an awful death after you're already starving yourself. right? Uh, and we should also point out, too, that another similarity uh, that they had with these original early 1900s suffragists with their hunger strikes is they were, and this is a very key thing for what ended up being, you know, the hunger strikes in the 1980s that we're going to talk about in a bit. Mm-hmm. But they one of their main aims was to be looked at as political prisoners and not criminal prisoners.
1: Yeah, that was a big ongoing thread throughout all of this, starting with the suffragists and then all the way into the 80s with the modern IRA. So –
0: I mean, should we talk about that for a minute? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, there's a huge difference in being viewed as a criminal and wearing prisoner's clothing and having a prisoner's rights, which are to say – like criminal prisoner's rights, Mm -hmm. which are to say not very many – and what they were fighting for and what the, the IRA was later fighting for in the 80s and the 70s, mm-hmm. which was, we're political prisoners. We want to be able – we don't want to look like common criminals. We want to wear our own clothes. We want to be able to, uh, to associate with, with each other and walk about um, outside of ourselves and congregate. And in 1976, you know, they allowed this for a while, but in 1976, the British government said no. We're going to treat you like you're terrorists and like you're common criminals. Mm-hmm. And you've got to wear these – you can't congregate anymore. You've got to wear, you know, a, a prisoner's jumpsuit. And this was a big, big deal.
1: It really was for a number of reasons. One, um, the, the reason why the Brits said we're not going to recognize you as political prisoners was because they had it at, at first. Um, and they decided that this was generating too much sympathy and legitimizing the IRA and its struggle for Irish independence way too much. And by ca- casting them as criminals rather than political prisoners, they were saying like, hey, these people are dangerous, they're thugs, they're terrorists, and you should be on the side of us, the Brits and the Protestants who are cleaning up the streets and getting these people off the streets and into jail. So it wasn't just the 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 way your day-to-day life panned out in prison, it was also like the larger public perception, uh, a battle for that that was going on, that both sides were really entrenched in their way of thinking with that.
0: Well, yeah, and that's the reason a hunger strike in the case of the IRA was, or could be at least very effective as a PR tool, Mm -hmm. because a common criminal prisoner isn't going to literally starve themselves to death for a cause. So, on one hand, you have the British government Saying, you know, we're not going to recognize you. You're just terrorists. On the other hand, you've got the IRA starving themselves to death. Right. Uh, fighting for rights to wear their own clothing. I think uh, this one thing you sent me said, as far as them congregating, is that in prison, they just saw that as another IRA headquarters, basically.
1: Yeah, they, they did a lot of strategizing in the early 70s. And they were able to, Chuck, because of something called um, Operation Demetrius. And that was something that the British Army carried out in 1971, and it ended up backfiring because it generated a tremendous amount of public sympathy for the IRA and its movement Um, because the British Army just started rounding up suspected members of the IRA and put them in what amounted to a prisoner of war camp. Um, There was no due process. They didn't get to plead their case in front of a judge. If they accidentally got scooped up and they really had nothing to do with the IRA, T.S., there was no recourse for getting out of there, and they set up – the Brits set up a a prisoner of war camp um, in Northern Ireland to hold, I think, hundreds and hundreds of of prisoners starting in um, 1971, and it really, really rubbed the public the wrong way because – it's nineteen seventy one you know, yeah, this isn't like the the seventeenth century all over again. it's nineteen seventy one and they're rounding people up and holding them in prisoners of prisoner of war camps um against their will. that's crazy,
0: that, yeah, so you know a hunger strike could be a pretty effective way to draw attention to this uh you know, Ed points out a few um, things about hunger strikes that could make it more effective, which is. Obviously, to do it as a collective action uh, is a much stronger message that you're sending than any individual. Um, So, if you have a group uh, with a political cause, you're going to get more attention. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it it casts the prison officials in a light of which they're either allowing these people to starve to death, which is, you know, a monstrous thing to do, or they're force-feeding them, which sometimes kills them, Mm -hmm. which is a monstrous thing to do. And, you know, your body basically shuts down. I think we've talked about starvation in other uh, episodes before, but, you know, your body uses up your fat stores. And once that's, gone, once that's gone, it starts literally, like, eating at your muscle, eating at your internal organs. And between, you know, 40 and 70-something days, your, your body is going to finally succumb to organ failure and you're going to die.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, once your once your body starts eating its own organs, you're in trouble. And even if you manage to survive the um, the, the hunger strike, um, you probably have done some serious permanent damage to yourself. So, so like we were saying, after Operation Demetrius, right? They rounded up a bunch of suspected IRA members, treated them as prisoners of war, but at the same time, they were also busting other IRA leaders with legitimate, illegitimate criminal acts like gun possession, things like that. So you had two groups of IRA prisoners being treated separately, the ones in the internment camp being treated like political prisoners or prisoners of war, and then the ones in the jail uh, being treated like common criminals. So to kind of get the same treatment in the jail as the uh, political prisoners in the POW camps were given, a guy named Billy McKee, who was an IRA leader, um, staged the first modern hunger strike in 1972.
0: That's right. And um, it was an effective strategy for about four years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this was right at that time, I think it was 1976, Mm -hmm. when they had that shift from recognizing them as political prisoners to uh, just, you know, criminal prisoners. So, this was pre that time and kind of led up to that shift.
1: Yeah. And then, um, so... You've got the criminalization campaign being carried out by the Brits and the um, Protestants in Northern Ireland who are running the the government. Um, And remember, it has a twofold effect. Like, you can no longer congregate. You can no longer strategize. We're no longer going to recognize your hierarchy of ranks um, and just deal with your leaders. Like, you're just a common criminal now. And it, it also turned the tables on the IRA prisoners who had formerly been treated with general respect by the um, guards, the guards were let loose on these people. um, And it led to a, uh, a really horrible time to be an IRA prisoner because it's almost like there was Pen up rage or something among the guards, and they just released it on the prisoners. They they poured scalding water on them. They hosed them down with um, cold water hoses in winter time. Um, they uh, they beat them regularly and routinely. And again, they were treated as common criminals. And uh, it, it was a, from what I can tell, from about 1976 to 1981 was. About as bad a time as you could be an IRA prisoner as there ever was.
0: Yeah. Um, we'll take a break in a sec. But before we do, I do want to mention the movie that I watched today because I figured there was probably a movie about this. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve McQueen, the uh, director that did 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. And Shame directed a movie. His first movie, actually. Uh, directed, Huh? Was it Nymphomaniac you watched? No, 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 that wasn't him. <laughs> oh, wait, was that – that? no,
1: that I think was, that was Lars Von Trier. Trier. Yeah, but he did one where um, Fassbender is a sex addict, right? That's shame. Okay, shame, that's what I meant. Is that what you watched? No, 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 that's not what I watched. Okay.
0: <laughs> You're like, what? Are, when's the hunger strike going to start? Uh, it was his first movie from 2008, also with Michael Fassbender, as Bobby Sands, who we'll you know, get to after the break, but it was called Hunger – and boy, oh boy, uh, I recommend it in one sense, and that it was a powerful film, um, but it was hard to watch, my friend. I can imagine. It was brutal. Um, it, it's a very, the way he structures it is sort of a kind of a non traditional narrative. It's not like a traditional biopic that you would expect. It's very quiet, not a lot of dialogue. Um, it's only 96 minutes long, but it's a very slow paced film. Mm. But just a really, I mean, I get the sense that it was a really uh, realistic depiction of those years that you were talking about between 76 and 81. Mm -hmm. And these guys were just brutalized, man. They were, uh, like, they would call in the riot squad and basically open the cells and Mm -hmm. throw their naked bodies into the hallway and beat them with batons and, like, like, cut off their hair and uh, their beards, like, till they were bloody. And it was it was a very, very tough movie to watch. And at the hunger strike part of it is only, like, the last 20 minutes or so of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the whole first part is just sort of the conditions in prison uh, and what's going on. So I recommend it on one hand. It is not for the faint of heart. Uh, but we'll kind of take a break now, and we'll talk about what else is going on in the prison's in 1976, right after this.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids, because let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless
0: visible. That's right. It's even in the name. Use code STUFF20 at checkout to receive $20 off your first month. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included.
1: Yep, again, use promo code STUFF20 and you'll receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Save on wireless with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. And you don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Switch now at Visible.com.
0: For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Right. So, uh, in the film and in real life, uh, in fact, this is how the film starts out, is the first prisoner that comes in refuses his prison clothes. Mm-hmm. And that's what started the blanket protest when they were basically like, I'm not going to wear your common criminal outfit. And they basically said, okay, well, you're just going to be naked 24-7 for years. Mm-hmm. And here's your blanket, and that's that's going to be your clothing.
1: And that's what they did. It's called the Blanket Protest. That first prisoner uh, under this new criminalization scheme said, you know, fine, I'll just wear a blanket. And like in very short order, I think 400 other IRA prisoners did the same thing. It's called the Blanket Protest.
0: They were Um, all just naked in the movie the whole time. Were they really? Yeah. Have you seen the new uh, Kids in the Hall? I haven't yet. I'm dying to, though. There's, Are they naked the whole time? <laughs> no, but in
1: in some places, and it's like wow, <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Really? Yeah, and I have to say, I think they're they're better than they they were in the first go round. Oh now, wow! It's which is very surprising, but it really they I laughed out loud more than I did than I remember doing in an average Kids in the Hall episode.
0: Okay, well I was a little actually worried to watch it. Don't be. For fear of like they're not, you know, going to be as great anymore and I would be it would taint the original or something.
1: No, definitely not. And I've never okay. understood that. How does something like a follow-up taint an original? It not doesn't make the, sense it,
0: to me. It doesn't taint the original, it taints the the whole uh, for me sometimes as a as a whole memory. Does I got that make you. sense?
1: Yeah, that makes more sense for sure. But yeah, yeah it doesn't I mean like those
0: originals aren't funny now. It's not like that. It's just like I got you. Oh, like, oh, boy, then they went on to do something not good.
1: So, um, yeah, I wouldn't worry about that, and I don't want to talk
0: it up too much, so you're
1: expecting, like, yeah, I don't want you to be let down, but I I don't think you will be. Fantastic.
0: Can't wait. Nakedness.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this blanket protest, I'm not sure how long it went on, but it went on for— Quite a while, and it happened during that period that, I guess, Hunger Covers, um, which, again, was about the worst time you could be an IRA prisoner. Because, like, they weren't doing this to common criminals that were in the same prison. They were doing it to the IRA members. So they went from treating them as political prisoners with a a general amount of respect and all of the freedoms that 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 came with to regularly beating them and hosing them down with cold water in the winter and, like, taking their clothes and, um, like— that was the the shift, the change in in treatment. and they were doing it to the IRA because they were trying to send a message the British government was is like this is what we think of you. this is how we're going to treat you. You should probably stop right now because this is what you can expect if we catch you from now on that that like treat that gentleman's agreement that we had before that's gone.
0: yeah. Uh, so in 1978 and the the film kind of portrays the blanket protest as concurrent with the dirty protest. Not sure if that's the case because the Dirty Protest came around in 1978. Mm. This is when – and this was really gross and hard to watch in the film. Oh, I'm sure Steve McQueen covered oh, it boy. very well. I know. And, and believe it or not, this makes me want to see 12 Years a Slave more mm-hmm. uh, because like, I knew it was tough. But now that I've seen this – I know it's going to be hard to sit through again, and I'm still avoiding it, but yeah. I, I want to see it more because I know it's going to be like super realistic, I think.
1: So hunger was your gateway drug to 12 years of I time. guess
0: so. Okay. Uh, but the dirty protest is when the prisoner said, all right, well, if we're going to be in here and uh, you're not going to give us any rights, we're not going to bathe. Uh, we're going to smear our feces all over the wall mm-hmm. and our food all over the wall, and we're going to take our our urine and feces and dump it under the uh, the cell door out into the hallway, so you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, very, it's a disgusting movie to watch, but uh, this really happened.
1: So one of the other things that happened, too, was that among those IRA prisoners who were treated like this, they formed a bond that has probably never been formed in the history of humanity. Yeah because, you know, no group was ever necessarily subjected to that exactly like that in exactly the same way. So, I mean, I'm sure there are other similar bonds among, you know, enslaved and um, imprisoned populations, but because they were already fighting for a cause that they believed in and they were suffering for a cause that they believed in, this stepped-up treatment just made that bond between them even stronger. So, one of the things that they did, that came out of all this was um, what's called the five demands. And it was basically like, you could summarize it as we want to be treated like political prisoners again.
0: Yeah, and they were all reasonable demands. Uh, One was, again, to wear their own clothes. Uh, Number two was to not have to go on work detail. Uh, They said they wanted to be allowed a visit and a package and a letter. uh, One, one, and one per week. Uh, And in the film, they did get visitors and they were Um, smuggling and uh, all kinds of things under the table, uh, which is always a a great part of any prison film. Sure. Uh, They wanted the freedom to associate again and organize and congregate. And then they wanted um, to revoke any of the punishments uh, that happened uh, because of these protests that were already in place.
1: Yeah, and like you said, they're reasonable, and they're so reasonable, they almost seem small. Like, the IRA's going through this, and that's all they want. But again, remember, yeah. being treated like a, p- a political prisoner has a lot to do with optics in the general public, right? Yeah. So that makes a little more sense, that, that it was just that is all they were asking for. Um, and there was uh, they got a big assist by a woman named Bernadette uh, um, who had been a member of parli- parliament, Parliament. Not the um, George Clinton version, but, like, the original. <laughs> she played keyboards? <laughs> so, um, so she was fairly well-known, and she actually ran in the European Parliament on a five-demands platform in 1979. And there was an assassination attempt on her life from the Ulster Defense Force, which was one of those paramilitary groups that, that began at the beginning of the Troubles. But they were a Protestant paramilitary group. Um, And she survived the assassination attempt and would show up to rallies and protests on crutches. Um, But she did a really great job at at focusing public support and attention on what was going on in the prisons and the protests that were being carried out and why they were being carried out.
0: That's right. Uh, And following that, the early 1980s is when we saw sort of the two main modern hunger strikes Uh, There was the one in the 70s, but the two in the 80s really, I think, got the most media attention. Uh, One began October twenty seventh, 1980. And this was, uh, I believe, seven strikers uh, quit eating again to try and get these five demands carried through. Mm -hmm. Uh, It lasted 53 days. And remember, uh, that's right in the wheelhouse of where you could die. And uh, one named Sean McKenna was very near death. And, you know, this whole time... Margaret Thatcher is, you know, she's known as the Iron Lady for a reason, and she was very much a hardliner. And I I I think it was a direct quote in the movie. You know, she said basically that these terrorists are resorting to a last resort, which is pity, that we should have pity on them. But basically, that's not going to happen. But uh, she was prepared to come to a settlement in this case because of the optics. The strike did end. Uh, because they didn't want Sean McKinnon to die, Mm -hmm. uh, because that would be really bad optics. Uh, So that was the 1980 strike preceding the one in March of 81.
1: Yeah, and the reason the March of uh, 81 uh, hunger strike started is because the Brits had agreed um, verbally to, to giving in on the five demands and treating the IRA prisoners as political prisoners again, and then reneged on it. They just didn't follow through. Uh, they never got it in writing, basically, is what it amounted to. And so they staged an even bigger, even more public hunger strike starting March 1st, 1981. And they, um, it's, it, I think it involved at least 23 hunger strikers. But rather than all striking beginning at the same time like they did in October, um, they staggered it, five people a week, so that this hunger strike would be drawn out even longer,
0: yeah, and that um, that makes sense. I also was wondering too during the film, like, or before the film, like, why why can't they just quash this in the press and not let any of this out? Because a hunger strike is only good if the public knows about it. But they were still getting visitors uh, that throughout this whole time. So mm-hmm. there were, you know, Bobby Sands' parents uh, visited him in prison and saw like his condition as he was like slipping away. And, uh, you know, we mentioned Sands because he was very much the, sort of the main public face of Mm -hmm. this 81 strike. Bobby Sands actually um, was elected to the British House of Commons Mm -hmm. while he was wasting away in prison. Um, He obviously wasn't allowed to campaign or anything like that and couldn't have because he was, you know, slowly dying of starvation. Mm Mm-hmm. But this was a very big deal that he was actually elected uh, to the House of Commons.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal because it it focused a tremendous amount of public attention. Like every every paper in the world was writing about how a guy in prison was elected to parliament. Um, and and now that we're talking about him, why is he in prison? And Oh, he's on a hunger strike? Why is he on a hunger strike? So it was a really big PR coup for the IRA. But then also, politically speaking, it had like a um, – It was a really big signal that the only way he could have been elected was if moderate Catholics, who normally just didn't go to the polls um, because they didn't want to support the IRA, but they also weren't about to to vote for a Protestant candidate— um, they came out and they voted for the IRA member. So it showed that the average person in Northern Ireland, or the average Catholic, was really upset with uh, how the British were treating the IRA, and it, their their treatment of the IRA was starting to backfire and that it was generating public sympathy and support that hadn't been there before.
0: Yeah, and he we should point out, he was a young guy. He was yeah. 26 years old when he started this strike, and I think he turned 27 uh, during the strike. So... He wasn't, you know, I think I had heard of Bobby Sands, and I always just sort of pictured him as maybe some guy in his 40s for some reason. Mm-hmm, me too. But he was a very young guy, and uh, he finally, you know, died of starvation on May 5th. Uh, this was 66 days into the strike. Uh, riots start erupting um, all over the place and protests all over the world, basically. It was mm-hmm. a very... Uh, very public matter, and I remember hearing about this when I was a kid, uh, even though I didn't understand what was going on. I remember hearing about Bobby Sands dying.
1: Oh yeah, wow! It was definitely not in my wheelhouse at the time. I think I was playing with a Tonka truck, maybe.
0: No, <laughs> I remember big news events like that though. I didn't, you know. I remember John Lennon dying, and I was like, "He's the guy with the round glasses." Yeah, that kind of thing, <laughs> right?
1: Um, so when Sands died, that was a really, really big deal. Thousands and thousands of people turned out for his his funeral, including very famously um, IRA paramilitary members who were wearing like um, balaclavas, basically um, at the funeral. Um, along the streets, along his funeral procession, there were thousands more people, you know, who turned out. So it showed just how much like people supported, the IRA, or at the very least, sympathize with the IRA that they were willing to die to starve themselves to death for their cause. And Bobby Sands knew he was going to die. He said toward the beginning he fully expected to die. Yeah, um, and he did. He 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 put his he did what what I I would say most of us would never do. He he starved himself to death for the cause that he believed in to help the cause that he believed in to help to basically serve as an inspiration to show. This cause means so much that me and some other people are willing to die to starve ourselves to a
0: death. Brutal, brutal death.
1: To help, um, to help further the cause, to help generate publicity for this cause.
0: So, uh, by the way, Fassbender dropped forty pounds for this role. So he, he kind of pulled a Christian bail. It was yeah. it was t- really like uh, tough to see that you know. I mean he's already screen.
2: he's
1: a pretty slight guy, even like under normal circumstances, you know
0: he weighed one seventy and dropped down to one thirty Wow uh he apparently ate like nuts and berries and stuff every day, and that was about it. Wow, so sands obviously was the 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 main headline, but he was just one of ten men that died uh in prison during these hunger strikes. uh I think there were twenty three total of thirteen survived. And um, Ed is keen to point out that, you know, the reason that some of these men survived is, you know, eventually you're going to lose consciousness and your family might step in and, you know, you're going to get your medical nutrition intravenously in that case. Mm -hmm. Uh, That wasn't the case, obviously, with the 10 who uh, who did die in prison. But I think in a lot of the cases of the 13 that survived was because they weren't able to make their own choice and their family intervened.
1: Right. So this strike, get this, this hunger strike, the second one, went on from March 1st, 1981 to October 3rd, 1981 and claimed the lives of 10 men. 10 people died during that brief period of time from hunger, from starving themselves. And it finally ended, at least in part, because one of the villains in this story, Humphrey Atkins, who was at the time the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and was very much aligned with the um, the uh, no pity uh, viewpoint of Margaret Thatcher, he was replaced. He, he was replaced by somebody who wasn't quite as much a hardliner, a guy named James Pryor. And Pryor was like, I want to put an end to this, so let's start negotiating. And they ended the strike on October 3rd, 1981, again, with 10 people dead in that six-month period from starvation.
0: Yeah, and it kind of, you know, depends on which side you're on and whether or not you believe it was an effective thing because they ended up um, sort of in a, uh, in a roundabout way getting uh, a lot of the five demands met, mm-hmm. but it was never like an official declaration that you are a political prisoner and we we're going to meet your five demands. It just sort of, it it was so. You know, if you look at it from the the Thatcher side, they never gave in. Right. If you look at it from the IRA side, they ended up in a roundabout way getting the same status. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there were probably a lot of IRA too that saw it as a defeat because they, you know, weren't officially recognized as such.
1: Right. And we should say going on outside the prison gates in, in Northern Ireland throughout this time are car bombings, assassinations, protests, riots. Um, there were a lot of riots around Northern Ireland when Bobby Sands died. Um, and so it's not like this is the only thing the IRA was doing. We, we just focused on this. But one of the things that came out of these hunger strikes um, was this idea, especially among the Sinn Féin um, leadership, that they they were never going to liberate Northern Ireland just through the paramilitary, that it, it was going to require politics? Yeah, and of course. and um, this this showed, especially the election of Bobby Sands to Parliament while he was in prison, that the IRA was vi- viable politically speaking.
0: Yeah. It's going to be real interesting to see what happens moving forward.
1: Yeah. But that's where they they can kind of source that, where they are today is pretty much there from those hunger strikes in 1981.
0: Yeah, and I would love to hear from our listeners uh, in Northern Ireland and in the Irish Republic, like what what their thoughts are of, you know, because I I trust stuff you should know listeners generally as being, uh, Uh you know, alive in the world and having – uh, studied, learned opinions, learned opinions. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear from both sides to see what they think. Um, I, I want to know what the tenor is over there.
1: Yeah, same here.
0: The word on the street. <laughs> okay. the, the word on the cobblestone street.
1: Uh, you got anything else? Uh, no. This is a good one, Chuck. Good pick. I'm glad Thanks. we did it. Uh, and since I said I'm glad we did it, it's time, of course, for
0: Listener mail. Uh, by the way did you know I'm way late on this but do you know Bono's son has a band Uh, no
2: his strokes no
0: (laughs) he has a band called Inhaler and I just heard about it and listened to it they put out an album last summer Mm -hmm. and it sounds exactly like U2 oh boy he sounds just like his dad Hmm. and it has the energy of like the early U2 Mm -hmm. it's really good I like it
1: yeah okay I'm good
0: yeah i don't i don't mean that in a in a negative derivative way you know your your voice sounds like somebody you're related to just by genetics yeah i don't think he's like i want to sound like my dad you know
1: sure yeah i don't think he's using auto like that i'm just surprised he didn't go <laughs> in like a a totally different direction musically like maybe like folk folk rock or folk prog or something
0: yeah i mean i did see that i read some reviews too some people kind of knocked it for like Going for that you know big stadium anthemic U2 thing mm-hmm. right out of the gate, uh, but you know stuff it is what I say. Yeah. <laughs> Where the sun don't shine, let someone make the music they want to make, and good for them if they're getting huge. I love it.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: All right, so this is just one of many squirrel emails we got. Who knew <laughs> that that was gonna generate so much email?
1: Momo did.
0: Oh man, it's crazy. Like we got videos of people scritching on little squirrels that they've been feeding, <laughs> squirrels crawling up people's laps and up there sitting on their shoulder like wild squirrels. Mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing. Al- like white albino squirrels are black squirrels. Uh, where was it that had the, the ones with the big long ears? I Did don't you see know. Those? No, I didn't see those. Uh, were those Toronto or is it Utah?
1: I'm guessing Utah. Uh,
0: I can't remember. I feel bad now. But yeah, they have these little sort of wizard long... Ears that stick up. It's its amazing.
1: Wizard ears? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Wizard ears. Elf ears. Not wizards. Oh, uh, okay. I got you. Elf ears. Elf can be ears. wizards, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: think so. Not according to Gary Gajax.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So here we go. Um, in the recent squirrel episode, Chuck said, show me a kid that can get a squirrel and hit it with a stick. And here's my story. In 2020, my wife and I were on a national park road trip in the western U.S. And while hiking in Zion... I heard a commotion on the trail behind me. I looked back. A couple was rushing over to the side of the trail where there was a significant drop-off because their son had gone over the edge. Oh, it was terrifying to witness, but thankfully the boy had been uh, had gotten caught on a tree and was not noticeably injured. Here's how he got there. The boy spotted a squirrel in the trail and hit it with a stick. It came after and screeched at the boy, startling him and causing him to retreat straight over the ledge Uh, let this be a teaching moment don't go after squirrels with sticks or you may be in for a nasty spill Mm -hmm. and that is from uh, Reed Stiller Mm -hmm. in Dallas, Texas who is a Texas A&M grad and uh, came to Athens for the uh, Aggies Bulldogs game a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. and had a great time in Athens and said to come out to College Station for a game and you will have a great time as well
1: very nice thanks for the invite we appreciate that who was that?
0: that is Reed Stiller well, thanks
1: a lot, Reed. We appreciate that big time. That is a really good story, actually, um, my evil part says. If you want to get in touch with us like uh, Reed did, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeart radio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
2: or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground.
1: Fill the grill and fire up the party. Get the Weber Sear Wood Pellet Grill. Smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. Go from low and slow on smoke boost mode at 180 degrees all the way to high heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full grate sear zone so you can put more food on the flame and food will look as good as it tastes. This grill is hot in 15 minutes and cleanup is easy. You'll cook on two levels at the same time, so you can make enough for everyone. And you can add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert. So get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through.